Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Tanzania's elections are unlikely to be free, fair, or credible. How should Tanzanians and their international partners respond? And Cote d'Ivoire's polls are a bad omen for the state of democracy in West Africa. Why are we seeing so many democratic reversals? Plus, we discuss how to hold elections safely and uphold democracy during the COVID-19 pandemic. How do we foster real partnerships between international and domestic observers? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Tanzanian President Magafoli has tilted upcoming elections strongly in his favor. What are the opportunities to reverse Tanzania's autocratic slide? Joining me to discuss Tanzania and other topics are Ansberg Gurumo, a journalist and author, Nick Cheeseman, professor of democracy at the University of Birmingham and founder of democracyinafrica.org, and Jessica Moody, a PhD candidate in the Department of War Studies at King's College and an author at African Arguments. This is our ninth episode in partnership with African Arguments. African Arguments is a pan-African platform for news, investigation, and opinion. Okay, so on October 28th, Tanzanians will go to the polls to either re-elect President John Magafuli or vote for one of his rivals, Tundulisu of Chidima or Bernard Membe of ACT Wazalendo. This is not going to be a fair fight. Magafuli has essentially made it difficult or impossible for his opponents to campaign and challenge him. I think as the political temperatures arising from our campaign have gone up, uh, the, re- the regime is getting scared and therefore they are, they are, they are pulling out all the, the, the stops, as it were, using every instrument of power in their capacity, in their possession. Ansbert, I was hoping that you could Tell us a little bit about Magafuli's leadership over the past five years, and particularly what steps has he taken to ensure his re-election? Thank you. Well, we are speaking of free, fair, and incredible elections. That is a vocabulary that does not exist in Tanzania. Right now, as we speak about the election in Tanzania, there's nothing free, nothing fair, nothing credible. It's just a, a struggle, a new struggle for freedom, a new struggle for justice, a new struggle for people-centered development. As you may observe from one of my recent publications, Magufuli, an ectom of cowardice, you will see the president who is afraid of the people, is afraid of, of his party, is afraid of the media, he is afraid of his own corrupt past, and is afraid of his current trend and leadership style. So this fear within himself is being implanted into other people by using state machinery, state apparatus. So this is the Tanzania that we have seen in five years, whereby journalists have been perishing, they have been abducted, they have, some of them have been killed, politicians have been silenced in several ways, one of them was shot several times, one, most of them have been having framed up cases in court, and everyone who came up to say something that was really not resonating well in the eyes and ears of the government, was in trouble. Even bishops and other religious leaders. Those are the the environments in which people have been living in Tanzania. And this is why the parliament has been rendered powerless because he's controlling the speaker. And the the, the constitution, unfortunately, the constitution of Tanzania 
is a presidential constitution. It has been like that for so many years since we became a, a republic. And so it depends on the discretion of the president on which way the nation should go. So it happens right now we have a dictator in power and he's a person that wants things to go the way he wishes to. There is only two words or three words that can describe his, his leadership style. Fear, cowardice, and atrocity. That's a, an powerful, a powerful indictment, but I think it rings true for, for many of us who are observing uh, from here in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And mm-hmm. a couple points you made were really important because I think that you get a lot of coverage around what he has been doing to Tundulisu or to uh, ACT and, and, and others in the media. Some people know about what he has done around statistics and how you can't have numbers that contradict the government's numbers. But there's a point here that's really important that you alluded to, which is what he's done with the ruling party, uh, the CCM. And he has really cowed uh, this longstanding party um, using disciplinary measures to sideline several of the party elders. And I guess... When I think about steps forward, part of this is going to be reversing some of the legislation he's put into place. A huge part of this is going to be freeing civil society and the opposition to resume their vital role in Tanzanian politics. But I also think we're talking about a reform of CCM, of the ruling party, if we're ever going to have a pathway back to democracy. And I just wanted to test that with you. When you think about the different lines of effort if we are going to get Tanzania back to a place of good health when it comes to democracy. How much is it about the ruling party? How much is it about the enabling environment? How much is it about civil society and the opposition? As it stands now, the ruling party, CCM, would rightly be called the walking dead. CCM that you you, you read about in the papers, on the internet and everywhere, is a dead party that is surviving on the back of a government and state apparatus. And uh, it's a divided CCM. Uh, there isn't one CCM that speaks one voice. But because, just in the same way as the country, the country's constitution is presidential, even the party itself depends on the chairman's position. So he's bullying them the way he should because he has got so much powers even within the same party. And you know, CCM has a lot of communist principles, the way it has been run. And I'm informed he has, he has been able to inf- infiltrate the party by putting uh, so many appointees from the Tanzania uh, Intelligence and Secu- Security Services. He has made them cutters in the party and give the, given them positions. So they're monitoring things from the intelligence point of view. And they're reporting back to the president. So what is happening right now is democracy in Tanzania does not depend on the revival of CCM anymore. If someone wants to revive Tanzania's democracy, a much power should be given to the people through their associations, like civil society organizations, like churches. Religious, religious leaders have so much power in Tanzania because ours is a religious community. So I think the main, the main focus, if we need to revive democracy in Tanzania, we have to strengthen the media, we have to strengthen the opposition. I keep following what is happening in Tanzania. In fact, uh, there is so much that we need to share. But of course, coming to uh, commenting on the on, on your introduction, there is nothing like Membe Magufuli Tundu. This is a two-horse race now. It's Tundu 
either Tundu or Magufuli. Nick, let me ask you the same question, but broaden it slightly to include foreign actors from the region, but also the United States, the United Kingdom, elsewhere. The government says it's going to let 15 foreign countries send in election observers, but it isn't clear which ones. The U.S. government has issued a statement of concern, but I think it missed some of the earlier opportunities to confront Tanzania's alarming democratic reversals. And in an interview with The Citizen last month, the U.S. ambassador actually talked about Magafuli's commitment to free, fair and credible elections. So I, I guess I want to know from you, what is the interplay between Tanzanian civil society and institutions and their foreign partners? What does that mean for Tanzania's overall democratic health? That's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that's happening right now is we see domestically within Tanzania a crackdown on those NGOs and civil society groups. We might have expected to be more critical of the election. One of the things that's gone under the radar a little bit is that many of those organizations were not given permission, were not licensed to be observers in the election. And as a result, you know, their sort of status in terms of commenting on the election been thrown into doubt. Many of them have appealed and asked for reasons, but reasons haven't been given. But it seems fairly straightforward that the reason is so that they can't actually call the elections out. At the same time, we're not going to have international election observation. It's, it's important to say this. I've checked in the last few days, there will not be a proper European Union delegation nor African Union. None of the big sort of groups will be going in a proper electoral mission. We see... What do they mean then when they say that there's going to be these election observers from other countries? It's SADC and the region? No, or what are they talking about? I don't about? even think it's that. I think what it is, is that a number of countries will send very small diplomatic missions, the kind of thing you might see where one or two MPs or representatives will go over to watch the elections. They're not election observers. They're not doing long-term election observation. They're not doing systematic polling station observation. They're not doing media monitoring. They're not engaging with the Electoral Commission. These are basically very small diplomatic missions. And the really big question I think we should be asking, Judd, actually, is should they be going? Because what they're going to do is they're going to give Megafuli the opportunity to claim that the election was observed because these people were on the ground. So really the risk is that they end up legitimizing a process that they're actually not well set up to monitor. I think that's a, a great point, and I don't want to throw us off in a total tangent, but our listeners may think that that's rare what you're talking about, Nick, is that people don't send observers. But the interesting thing is the AU has an uneven record. And when it's a small country like the Comoros recently, they won't send observers. So that is a policy option that is probably not taken enough when it's clear this election is not going to be free, fair or credible. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the things that uh, Brian Klaas and I wrote in our book, How to Rig an Election, was, you know, observers have to be better at saying, you know what, we haven't seen any improvement in the last six elections. Our observer recommendations have not been taken in the last six elections. We're risking just legitimizing the process by being here. Maybe we should say, if you're not going to take the recommendation seriously, we're not going to come. That's a tough thing for observers to do, particularly because it is now an industry, you know, and it's kind of doing yourself out of a job. It's also recognizing that you have limited power and authority. But perhaps in places like Uganda um, and others, you know, where we've seen very little real change over many, many years, that's the case that we now have to take. I think the real challenge, though, is, of course, coordination. We need better coordination both between the international election observers, but also between them and the domestic groups. Because when all of the observer groups act together, that's when they can have a really big effect leveraging, you know, a government to actually make changes. But when they disagree, of course, the government can point to the mixed messages. The media becomes unsure about exactly how to evaluate the election. And the government can argue that, well, there's, you know, differences of opinion. Basically, the election 
situation was okay. And again, we don't actually see systematic change. That's an incredibly important point, and uh, it's a great preview, too, because we're going to come back to that in the final section. But let's talk about another problematic election, which is Cote d'Ivoire. On October 31st, President Alassane Ouattara will ask his compatriots to endorse him for a third term. Now, our listeners may remember that we discussed some of these dynamics in August, but just as a quick recap, Ouattara tapped Prime Minister Amadou Gonkoulibaly to replace him. Gonkoulibaly died, so Ouattara said he was going to run. He actually said it was a great sacrifice or a real sacrifice for him to run for a third term. And I should add, while he's going for re-election, he's also disqualified two of his biggest rivals, Guillaume Soro and former President Laurent Gbagbo. Guillaume Soro, the former Prime Minister of the Ivory Coast, barred from standing in next month's election, is calling on the opposition to block President Alassane Ouattara by any lawful means. The opposition says he is violating the constitution by seeking a third term, but the president claims a constitutional change means his two-term limit has been reset. Jess, you published an essay in African Arguments in May entitled, Ouattara's Out, but whoever wins in Cote d'Ivoire, many won't be happy. Now, obviously, Watara is now in, but some of the issues that you raise are in play and arguably even more acute. So I'd love it if you could update us on your thinking on the election and any of the threats to stability that you foresee. Certainly, yeah. I think actually the situation is much more serious now than it was when I wrote that article in May. It's becoming increasingly concerning that the election will result in significant unrest. Watara's candidacy particularly is a flashpoint for violence, I think, not least because, as you say, recently the Constitutional Court ruled that his candidacy was allowed, but 40 of the 44 candidates that declared themselves for this election have been ruled out. So that really just lends itself to the view that the Constitutional Court is biased in favour of the ruling party and Watara. That's worrying because not only is the Constitutional Court perceived to be biased in favour of the government, but also the Electoral Commission has long been seen as being disproportionately advantageous for the ruling party as well. We saw earlier this week that one of the only remaining members of the opposition that was on the Electoral Commission has withdrawn. Um, So these two bodies that are charged with overseeing the election are now both seen as being biased, which really just paves the way for a contestation of the result, I think. The PDCI, one of the major opposition parties, has said that there's no way that the ruling party can win this election. Um, and the leader of that party, Henri Kuenon-Bidier, has said that it's quite likely that this election will result in a civil war the likes of which Cote d'Ivoire has never seen before. So there's this kind of upping of the ante going on. And most recently, we've had the, the opposition coalition calling for a campaign of civil disobedience unless Ouattara withdraws from the election. I mean, these are conditions that really do not lend themselves to free and fair elections that are held in peace. Um, And obviously in Cote d'Ivoire, we have a real precedent for violent elections taking place. The last really contentious election in that country in 2010 led to the deaths of 3,000 people. And more recently in October 2018, when local elections were held, um, at least two people were killed in unrest then. And Ouattara's announcement itself, when he said in August that he would actually stand for this third term, That led to violent clashes all over the country in which 15 people were killed. So the stage is really set for for violence, I think, um, which is is really concerning. Yeah, I'm deeply concerned about it. And there has been a couple of calls for them to delay the elections, but the government has rejected at least a report from from the Africa report that Macron asked. And then um, the International Crisis Group just had a piece out late last month that talked about, you know, the 
reasonableness of a delay so there could be a dialogue. I don't know. Do you think that those are compelling policy options at this point? I mean, I think it would be fantastic if they could delay the election and hold a a reasonable dialogue on the matter. I just don't really see it happening. The people involved in this election are many of the same characters that we've seen stand in numerous previous elections. In fact, this election is really just a quasi rerun of the 2010 election. And the personalities are just are just too great. The ego is too big. And I think this, the scope for dialogue is, is not really that promising. So we've got real concerns about this election and the violence that it may uh, engender. And then there's this broader question about what Cote d'Ivoire's trajectory means for the region. It used to be just a couple of years ago that we talked about how West Africa had turned a page on authoritarianism and military rule. And I think what's happening in Cote d'Ivoire, in Guinea, uh, in Mali, I think these have been real shocks. In fact, uh, Freedom House has recently said that West Africa has seen the fastest decline in political rights and civil liberties last year. And I I feel like, and this is where I'm going to ask Nick to help me think through this, but I think the international community has been too silent. The U.S. Embassy in Abidjan had this very tepid statement about the so-called third term. And Nick, does what's happening in Cote d'Ivoire matter for the democratic health of the broader region? You know, how do you think other leaders are interpreting what's happening in Cote d'Ivoire? Could it change their calculus? This is a big question, but what is the state of democracy in West Africa? I think that, that's a great question. I mean, the first thing that's really important to say for our listeners, perhaps, is that people don't always recognize the really great variations across Africa when it comes to democracy. You know, West and Southern Africa, on average, have much higher levels of political rights and civil liberties than, say, East and Central Africa. So so West Africa is starting off from being a region uh, that actually looks comparatively good. But as you say, there have been some really worrying trends. And the question is, to what extent do they contaminate? You know, does having a bad neighbor or an authoritarian regime nearby make it harder to build a democracy? I think one of the things that I'm worried about is that there seems to be a sort of sense that the international condemnation and the domestic condemnation of authoritarian power grabs is sort of um, becoming weaker. So if we were to look at what Magafuli is doing, you mentioned uh, the US ambassador. The US ambassador did actually put out a statement a couple of days ago saying he was worried about political violence around the elections. But as the international community often does, he said he was worried about political violence as if everybody was committing it. When actually we know that the majority of it is being committed by the ruling party. So sometimes to try and maintain neutrality, I think the international community almost undermines the point and the credibility of, of the statements that it's making. And combined with, you know, the fact that we saw this successful popular coup in Mali, we've seen other leaders, you know, get third terms or remove terms without massive domestic protests. I think there is something we need to worry about, which is the kind of gradual erosion of confidence in democracy as the best form of government for African states. So the idea that authoritarian rule is kind of needed to get stuff done just doesn't hold in Africa. You know, the more countries that become authoritarian, the more it seems to be a norm on the continent, the more we see reversals of multi-party democracy or term limits. I think the lower the costs of doing those things are to the next set of leaders. And that makes it slightly more tempting. Now, that doesn't mean something's going to happen in Cote d'Ivoire and there'll be a domino effect across the whole of West Africa. Of course not. But it does mean that if all of a sudden in the space of a couple of years, Tanzania becomes clearly authoritarian. Cote d'Ivoire does. Guinea, you know, plus, 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 plus. All of a sudden, the landscape is different. The one caveat I would say to that, of course, is that Cote d'Ivoire hasn't been democratic for a while. Overall, this general trend is worrying. And it's hard to see right now exactly what's going to stop that trend. 
Yeah, and I don't want to bang on the same drum, but we do see the regional organizations pick and choose where to fight. So in the case of Guinea, ECOWAS has sent delegation after delegation to get delays or to push back to try to get a different outcome. And you're not seeing the same in in Cote d'Ivoire. We're starting to see in the case of Cote d'Ivoire, regional courts make decisions around a candidate eligibility and Cote d'Ivoire has ignored them or at least said they're no longer part of that court. And it's just... It's just interesting to reflect that only a couple of years ago, 13 out of the 15 countries of ECOWAS were going to pass a resolution saying that third terms are banned forever. The more and more that we have less leaders who are walking the walk, talking the talk, I think that, as you said, Nick, like the barriers will, will, will lower and we'll see more people thinking this is easier to do. So I was just going to say a quick two finger on that, if I may. I just think that the really important point to keep in mind is that, you know, all of these presidents have a reason to be afraid of coups because the coup is what takes them out. So all of them are like ganging up against coups. They're much more likely to declare a coup as unconstitutional or to claim that that then means a country should be kicked out of the African Union or to have problems with that because that actually threatens their hold on power. Extending term limits doesn't. Right. So it's much easier to get a consensus between African leaders on condemning a coup than it is on extending term limits. Extending term limits is something many of them might want to think about in the future. So I think it's kind of easy to see why sometimes we get more action on certain things than we do on others. But I think you're right that even within that, it's inconsistent. You know, in Zimbabwe, for example, we didn't have the same condemnation of what was clearly a coup as we had that in some previous cases. Jess, what do you think? I think the security context is worth considering here as well. I think that Cote d'Ivoire really represents a country that is relatively stable in West Africa and has uh, sort of also relatively good military. And in a region where Islamist extremism is, is becoming increasingly problematic and is potentially expanding towards the coast, I think a lot of countries are wary of, of doing anything to rock the boat in Cote d'Ivoire. They would like Ouattara's government to remain in power because he represents stability Um, And I think that's very much the same within the international community, particularly in the US and France. They don't want to condemn Ouattara's third term bid because without Ouattara in power, who knows what Cote d'Ivoire would look like. Um, Ouattara has presided over nine years of stability or relative stability, and he's the perfect ally ally for them in their fight against Islamist extremism in in the region. So I think that sort of contributes to this idea that nobody is going to speak up against his third term bid and, and the sort of demise of democracy there. Yeah, I think that's an, an important point. And I think that's why you see different responses from the international community as well about when it comes to leaders who there are these you know other priorities, whether it's, you said security, Jess, but I also know that in many circles, it's the economic dynamics in Cote d'Ivoire that has been a break on being more critical. So I think that's right. In our final segment, I want to talk about Nick's new article in the conversation, How to Hold Elections Safely and Uphold Democracy During COVID-19 Pandemic. We've been discussing Tanzania and Cote d'Ivoire, and we have a busy election schedule still ahead of us with votes in Burkina, Ghana, Niger, the Seychelles, a gubernatorial poll in Ondo State and the Guinea. Nick, can you walk us through the central arguments of your piece Uh, Particularly, how do we balance democracy and public health concerns? And you have a a really good couple of paragraphs on reimagining election observation missions. 
Thanks. Yeah, I mean, we thought it was important to write this, right? Because, you know, despite the virus, the electoral cycle does not stop. And we have a ton of elections coming up in Africa, not just this year, but also next year. And one of the things we wanted to really point out was that as well as there being risks of holding elections, you know, there really are risks of not holding elections. Postponing elections indefinitely in countries like Ethiopia, for example, could cause instability and further um, disagreement between political parties. It can undermine the credibility of the regime. And of course, you need that credibility if you're going to put in place coronavirus measures that require popular compliance. And therefore, you know, simply saying let's postpone elections isn't necessarily a kind of silver bullet here. Many countries will feel that they need to hold them. So then how do we hold them safely? And one of the big issues that we wanted to talk about in in the piece is that African elections do have a couple of really distinctive features. And one is that they actually see higher levels of rally attendance than most elections around the world. So that means that the kind of physical rally based nature of campaigning does then cause serious questions about is it feasible to have that kind of campaigning during elections? The risk, of course, if you move away from that and move to what President Museveni in Uganda has talked about as a kind of digital or scientific election where no rallies are allowed, is that potentially you just play into the hands of the ruling party that might have a greater ability to use digital technology to contact people and to use state radio to contact people. And therefore, you actually undermine the opposition and actually play into the hands of the government. So all of these kind of questions about how do you deal with the specific issues that are going to come up? And it's a very, very difficult difficult landscape. So one of the things that we did in the report, which is edited by Sarah Birch and put out through the auspices of the British Academy, is to really think about how do we do election observation? Because election observation is one of the most important ways that the international community can try and dissuade, you know, electoral manipulation. And we know that election observers have been criticised a lot recently for perhaps not condemning elections as strongly as people wanted them to. But we also know that the complete absence of any observers, as we were just talking about in Tanzania, means that there's nobody to cry wolf, there's nobody to point out that there's been a major problem. And it makes it really hard for the international community to then intervene because they don't have that group on the ground collecting the data that they can rely upon to use their word as the trigger for, for example, condemnation or for sanctions or perhaps for uh, sending mediators in the case of an electoral conflict. So the question for us was, you know, what do observers do? Do they just try and observe as normal? Do they try new forms of observation where maybe they they use expats who are on the ground? That means you don't have to fly people in, so you get rid of their health risks. But our argument was actually rather than try and simply tinker with existing models to make it more feasible to be safe during coronavirus, observers could do something much more radical. What they could do is think about kind of observing virtually. So the big international observer groups could say, look, during COVID, we're going to pioneer a new model. And that model is that we're going to partner with domestic organizations. We're going to support civil society groups and domestic monitors. They're going to do the sort of on the ground monitoring. They've got the numbers. They've got the local context knowledge. They're going to produce the sort of primary data. We will work with them and help support them so that they've got the funding they need to do that. We'll also engage, you know, at the various levels of the Electoral Commission and so on. And we'll do some of the things that perhaps can be done remotely. For example, monitoring the media, monitoring social media, really strengthening our capacity, which has been quite limited thus far in digital uh, monitoring of elections. And then those two more specialised tasks going hand in hand, you actually get a much more efficient, efficient use of resources. You actually get a model where international actors are supporting and empowering their domestic counterparts. And you can then have a process at the end of that 
where you actually see organizations collaborating around how they release reports rather than everybody simply releasing their independent report and almost competing with each other. And surely the long term goal of all of us, including election observers, should be to make sure that these tasks can be done by the domestic organizations themselves rather than needing to be done internationally. Osbert, what do you think of this recommendation? You know, can there be these partnerships between the international and domestic observation missions and with, as Nick had, sort of a diversified task about virtual versus non-virtual? Is this workable in Tanzania? Is it too late for this round? And if, if this isn't the right approach, do you have other recommendations? I subscribe to much of what Nick had just said about how to do it. He made the point very well. Only I could add a bit of augmentation to his, his, uh, his suggestions because right now Tanzania is not easily accessible from outside. Election observers are not allowed. Of course, they are formally allowed, but the laws and obtaining circumstances on the ground are not friendly. So I, I, I suppose not many people will find their way to Tanzania uh, during this election. So as he said, virtual observation is the only way that could give you something tangible and something meaningful. And in that case, I'm seeing some setup for that. But the virtual observation has got its limits because you have to depend on other people to do things for you and report to you for you what you would have done in a different way if you were there physically. And for the case of Tanzania, I don't see reliable domestic organizations which international observers would team up with and collaborate with in collecting results, for example, in monitoring the behavior, the trends of the campaign. I don't see much of that because most of the domestic organizations that have been allowed to observe the elections are the ruling party friendly organizations. They have been specifically chosen to favor the ruling party in whatever they are going to say during and after the election, most of them. If I were to be allowed to propose, if we want to make any meaningful any meaningful observation, I would team up with the opposition parties because they are the, on the other end of the struggle. They, they reach where some people don't reach. And in my opinion, Tanzania needs more international observers now than local observers because of credibility. And I don't want to say that Tanzanians are not reliable, but I want to say Tanzania has been under the yoke of fear, threats from the from the regime, so much that anything that has got to do with the incumbent and his party, you may not get an objective opinion from the people on the ground. I mean, I think those are essential points, right? Who are you partnering with? And particularly, what is the enabling environment? Can the enabling environment even support this? You can, I think, work backwards, right, and think about the investments you need to make ahead of time in terms of your partnerships, in terms of working through the social media challenges. But uh, Nick, any responses? I think I think it's a great point that, you know, there are countries where civil society is so intimidated, you know, you get to a point where you, you wonder who you could actually work with. It's also true that in some countries, civil society is polarized and is seen to be affiliated to one party or another. So I think all of those points are true, are going to be countries in which it works much better and much worse. I mean, and it, it reminds me, you know, that this is a game of kind of cat and mouse. And, you know, this isn't a, a game in which you can set up a certain set of strategies and expect them to work almost inevitably. 
inevitably they're going to be sort of overcome within a couple of years and you're going to have to keep working. I think what we really wanted to do, though, was to to point out something that we've often noticed, you know, when we go to countries, which is that the domestic observers will actually often give slightly more critical responses than international ones to an election. And yet their election, their press releases, their statements, their press conferences are often much less well covered, especially in the international media than the international observers. And I think what we were trying to do is also sort of issue a clarion call that 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 maybe that's not right. And maybe we need to start to find ways that the international organizations can do a better job of empowering and strengthening the voice of those domestic observers, particularly in contexts where they are doing a good job and they may even be more critical than the international, their international counterparts. I think there's something that we can do to address this, which is if we're talking about true partnerships, and, and I think what you're saying, Nick, is in the international community, an undervaluing of a domestic opinion around these elections, right? Looking for the European or the American to validate it. But I think that one of the ways that we strengthen this reciprocity and elevate domestic viewers is to actually have some reciprocity. And so I've been thinking about the election in the U.S. next month in November And I did some searching around. Apparently, the U.S. does invite foreigners to observe its election. The uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, is going to come and observe the election. But when it comes to Africans, my experience has been a couple of journalists, but no one's asking the AU to come and observe the U.S. election or, or ECOWAS. And I actually think that would be a really important dynamic. It would give those organizations an opportunity to elevate their voice by commenting on the U.S. system. And then perhaps that can redound to them in, in subsequent African elections. So maybe it's a crazy idea. But Jess, what do you think? Is that, is that something we should pursue? Would that have some of the effects that Nick's talking about, a reciprocity? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think one of the biggest problems I see with these election observer missions is that so often in really contentious elections, they're accused of sort of foreign meddling and Westerners getting involved in in our sovereignty kind of thing. But if there was complete reciprocity in terms of election observer missions, then perhaps the idea of the, the observation missions would just become a lot more credible generally. And I think unfortunately, at the moment, the situation in the US is such that unless something like this starts to happen, you just get such an impression that there's one rule for the West and there's one rule for everybody else. And I mean, at the moment, the US president has made so many ambiguous statements about whether whether or not he would stand down should he lose the election. Yeah, as you say, there's no sort of AU mission going to observe the election there. And yet, if you have that kind of situation in a West African country or, or anywhere in Africa, there would be a lot of pressure to send in an influx of observer missions to make sure that the election takes place in a, in a free and fair manner. So, yeah, I think there's a there's a much greater need for reciprocity and that, that would really improve the credibility of election observer missions more generally. This has been a, a big mission for us at CSIS. I spent my entire career working for the U.S. government, analyzing African politics and now that I'm out of government, you know, we try very hard to elevate African voices and ask them, ask journalists and academics and thought leaders what they think of our own domestic election process. And so we've had a number of pieces about the Super Tuesday and the election in Iowa and George Floyd's murder. We just did one on the RNC and DNC. We have one planned actually on the debates and President Trump's recent COVID-19 diagnosis. And and maybe, Nick, I, I hope you could pull the string on this a little bit, because with all of these questions about the U.S. election, 
question, the president's diagnosis, but clearly the potential for violence. What do you think that means for for Africa? And and again, Jess, you're 100 percent on it. This one rule for the West and one rule for everyone else. I think we need to be really worried about the U.S. right now. I mean, I've studied election violence in a number of countries. I, I sort of cut my teeth as a researcher of elections on the Kenyan elections of 2007-8, where, of course, a thousand people lost their lives in post-election violence. But I've also worked on a number of other elections that have been fairly violent. And a number of the things I see there, I see in the United States, you know, deep entrenched social cleavages, inequality, economic inequality, reinforcing uh, ethnic or racial tensions, an irresponsible president who's devaluing the elections and trying to make them look like they're not credible in advance of the election, you know, the rise of militias, many of whom are armed, and the, you know, sort of questionable legitimacy of the state security in certain parts of the country. I mean, I think if we put it together and we then have a, a disputed election, it could be really difficult. And I think we could have a disputed election because one of the things that happened in Kenya in 2007 was that Raila Odinga looked like he got a lot of votes. He was way out ahead. And Kibaki then started, to, the, the ruling party candidate started to close him down. And obviously there were lots of accusations that there was election rigging and that's what got Kibaki, the ruling party candidate, over the line. But one of the things that really triggered the wave of discontent was the process, seeing the opposition candidate way out ahead and then the ruling party candidate take over him at the last minute, confirmed to all of opposition supporters that this was a process of manipulation. What's going to happen in the US is going to be exactly the same, because the people who are voting by postal ballot are going to be predominantly Democrat. The people who are going to vote in person are therefore going to be more weighted towards the Republicans. Could well be that Trump wins the election in terms of the vote on the day at polling stations, but Biden wins because of the postal vote, which means that Trump could try and declare early on the basis of the polling stations while the vote where the postal vote is still being opened. And all of a sudden, you've got a major constitutional and political crisis. And I think that's exactly the kind of context in which the US absolutely needs to invite in international election observers, but also international experts. You know, experts, academics from Kenya, from Nigeria, from other parts of Africa understand the dynamics of electoral violence. They understand the context in which these things can go from risky to actually seeing conflict. They also understand how to pull back from that, how to do mediation, how to build temporary transitional governments, how to do national reconciliation, how to do truth and reconciliation commissions that build community links and actually rebuild countries after periods of inequality, for example, apartheid in South Africa. And so I think there's numerous ways right now in which the US at a vulnerable moment in its own democracy could be much strengthened by engaging more seriously around the world. And I think, you know, as a final point for me, that would be a really good way for whoever is the next president to start making uh, things better around the world by actually recognizing that US democracy has problems, these are both to do with race, both to do with inequality, but also to do with the legacies of things like gerrymandering, that the US needs to do a systematic review of its own democracy, and that it can do that review better in partnership with countries all around the world. And then you could pitch America not as the leading light of democracy telling everybody else how to do it, but as a partner among many partners, recognizing that democracy all over the world needs to be strengthened at home as well as abroad, looking for answers as well as giving information and advice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. When I'm talking to audiences, U.S. government or otherwise, I think this is an opportunity for us to be humble, 
to be honest about the imperfections of our system and to present an opportunity for us to learn from each other, from our system, our challenges, and our African counterparts' challenges. So it was a meaty question to give at the very end, but thanks, Nick, for tackling that. And let me just thank all of our guests for joining us, and we'll be back up in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.